Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Hosea chapter 4. I know it's been a couple of weeks, but last time we were in Hosea, we worked through the second half of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. A short chapter, but really that section, the last half of 2 and all of chapter 3, reminds us of the mercy of God. The people had abandoned God. They had broken their covenant promises to God. Uh, It had gone so far as to say they'd forgotten God completely. But God never forgot his people. He pursued them. He would call them back. Those that were shown no mercy would be shown mercy again. Those who were called not my people would be called his people again. And as Israel is restored in their hearts and their worship, they will be restored to their land. And it's this amazing promise that just highlights the faithful, merciful nature of God that is really, it's more than we can comprehend. Because judgment should have been the last word. That is right. Judgment should have been the end of it all. Uh, But inexplicably, God loves his people through their sin enough to bring them to the point of repentance and redemption. It's a remarkable reality. And then he gave a picture of that in Hosea chapter 3, where Hosea, the man who has this broken marriage, who had been nothing but faithful to his wife, is now called to go and find her, to seek her out, and to buy her back to purchase what already was his. And we see this price of redemption that comes. And of course, uh, hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of redeeming us out of sin, uh, of redeeming a people out of the slavery of sin. And as we come through those chapters, we just get this marvelous picture of what God does to be both just and merciful. Because he doesn't ignore sin, he doesn't excuse sin, he doesn't minimize sin. What he does in love is to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. And how can you do anything but worship in light of that? And it's good that we have that section because, like I said, we're going to enter a long section that really unpacks the severity and the failure of the people. It talks about sin a lot. We're going to work through judgment a lot. But remember, that theme of redemption is going to run through the background and the backdrop of all of this. So if you're not there already, find your way to Hosea chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 to set the stage for where we're going to be going really for the next 10 chapters or so. We won't cover all of that today. But Hosea chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Lord says to his people Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There's no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns. All who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, even the fish of the sea are taken away. Let's pray. Lord, sin is serious, but my flesh doesn't want to see that. I want to minimize it. I want to excuse it. Lord, as we come before your word, remind us of how far we've fallen. Uh, Restore in our minds a picture of the holiness, the value, the perfection of you, God. And then help us to see our sin in light of that. And as we take our sin seriously, Lord, I pray that you'd bring us to the place of repentance. I pray that you'd help us to see the joy of restoration, the beauty of your mercy and forgiveness. I pray that you'd draw us to worship in light of all of that. So, Lord, as we come before your word, I ask that you would open our eyes. 
Open our eyes so that we might see wonderful things that you have written for us. On our own, we bring darkness. On our own, we bring assumptions and presuppositions. On our own, we bring sin that clouds every spiritual truth. Lord, strip that away and show us who you are. And then through the power of your spirit, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be obedient, that you would help us not only to see, but then to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, you're good. You are faithful. You are merciful. And you've promised to encourage us and equip us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we look through the book of Hosea, I've said it a couple of times, that Hosea moves through kind of cycles. We went through chapter 1, which was the whole book in a single chapter. Sin, judgment, restoration. We went through chapters 2 and 3, which follow that same cycle. They just draw it out a little bit. Sin and judgment and restoration. And now we enter the third and the final cycle that will take us through the rest of the book. Sin in depth. Judgment in depth. And then almost as if you have to come up for air, chapter 14, which really pours out the restoration and the promised faithfulness of God. Why does Hosea do that? Why does God, through the prophet, do that? Why say the same thing over and over again? Why not just say it once? Other than that he's God and he does all things perfectly. I would imagine it's the same reason that I need to be told why I'm going to the store. And then I need to have the list. And then I need to be texted the list. And then I need to call Brandy as I'm checking out and saying, what did I not remember to put on the list? Because I'm forgetful. Reality is that God's people are forgetful. And it's not that we intellectually forget that God exists. It wasn't that Israel intellectually forgot that Yahweh existed. The problem is we forget our sin because we want to forget our sin. Our enemy, the devil, wants us to forget our sin. He wants to minimize our sin. And so we have this kind of twin pressure between our flesh, well, really three pressures the world, our flesh, and the devil. They, they contend against us taking sin seriously. We want to move quickly from failure to restoration. We want that release from feeling bad and feeling guilty toward feeling uh, kind of the, the weight taken off as we work through forgiveness. And that is true, and that is real, and that is absolutely critical. Restoration, resurrection, life, we are working toward Easter where we celebrate all of those things. But sometimes in our hurry to do that, we forget to meditate on the seriousness of sin, which sometimes prevents us from, you could work through the Psalms and think through the idea of lament of really pouring out our hearts in confession of our failure. And so if you remember again, back in chapter 2, God laid out basically his case against Israel. He called the children as witnesses against the failure of their mother. And as we move through the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5 together today, what we see is kind of the continuation of that same language, legal language, where God lays out his case against Israel. And not only lays out his case, uh, he comes to a verdict. He pronounces their guilt. And then in chapter 5, he moves on toward the sentence. But, but really, what we're going to see first in chapter 4 is God's verdict against Israel. And broadly, we saw it in, in verses 1 through 3 that I read. Everybody has failed. There is no good thing in the land. 
There is no faithfulness. There is no steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God. Instead, what's taken its place is lying, murder, swearing, stealing, and committing adultery. But then, beginning in verse 4, he begins to move into these specific indictments against people. And first of all, what we're going to see is that the priests are guilty. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Yet let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. The priests and the prophets are condemned for their failure. Now, what was their role supposed to be? Uh, These are, in effect, the religious guides of Israel. The priests were supposed to be the mediators. They were the go-betweens. You have a holy God and a sinful people, and you need someone to bridge that gap. And the priests are God's designated mediators between God and men. And the prophets are supposed to be the spokesmen for God. They speak what God says, when God tells them to speak, and only what God tells them to speak. And God says, as he looks at the religious leadership of Israel, that they have utterly failed. They were supposed to lead people in a right understanding and then a right response to God, and they have failed to do that. And here's the result. Look at verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because the spiritual leadership failed, the people move forward in ignorance, and they run headlong into destruction. Now, people are not guiltless in this. They absolutely bear the burden of their guilt, and we'll see that in a minute. But those who have been charged with the spiritual care and oversight of Israel have failed miserably in their role. And the Lord says, because you have rejected knowledge... I reject you from being a priest to me. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. God says, I'm going to cut it off. The failed priesthood, the failed prophets, I'm going to do away with it. That's severe because the priesthood, the prophets, those were supposed to be a gift to the people. Knowing how you can live in fellowship with God, having someone serve as that mediator between you and God, having someone speak the word of God to you, that should have been a gift to the people. But God is going to cut that off because the more they increased, it says, the more they sinned against me. What does it mean that the more they increased, the more they sinned? Well, it might mean uh, that the more they increased in power and influence and authority, the more they sinned. And I think that was absolutely true. But but there's a physical component here. Because remember, when the land divided, north and south, uh, Jeroboam set up alternate sites of worship. And you had to populate those sites of worship with additional priests. And it wasn't the priesthood that God had called the people to. So they had actually literally multiplied the number of priests. And even in doing that, they had corrupted and perverted what God had said was the way that you were supposed to worship him. Because God is the one that determines how you approach him in worship. And the people, and in particular the priests, had totally forgotten that. And so what's going to happen is that God is going to turn their glory into shame. He's going to take their honor, their renown, their prestige, and he's going to turn it into shame. Why do they deserve that? Well, because look at verse 8. It says, they feed on the sin of my people, and they are greedy for their iniquity. What should the priests, what should the prophets have wanted? They should have wanted the people to be holy. They should have pursued and encouraged and nurtured and guided the people toward holiness. But instead, uh, they were actually desiring that the people fail. 
What a corrupt picture of worship. It said they feed on the sins of the people, and the way to read that is it might be they feed on the sin offerings of the people. In other words, the priests were getting fat from the failures of the people. They would take the offerings, and they would enrich themselves with it. Things that were supposed to be devoted over to God were now going toward these corrupted priests. And because they have failed, the people fail. Verse 9, and it shall be like people, like priest. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. The people are what the religious leaders point them toward being. The people follow the path that their religious leaders lay out for them. And so God is going to judge them. And then really the next few verses talk about all of their pursuits, all of their lusts are just going to go unsatisfied. Everything that they chase after, everything that they long for is ultimately going to show, be shown to be meaningless and fruitless and valueless. But the sins of the religious leaders, although they're great, they're not the only ones. The people aren't off the hook, as we say, because not only are the priests guilty, but the next section deals with the idea that the people themselves are guilty. Look at verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. The people lack wisdom from God. They have no instruction or understanding from the priests or from the prophets. And instead, where are they looking for wisdom and knowledge? They're looking for it in their idols. Their walking staff or a piece of wood. They're seeking wisdom in all the places where the pagan nations around them would seek wisdom. Now, it it seems very, very silly for us to ask for wisdom from a piece of wood. It would seem ridiculous for us to ask for answers from a walking staff. Um, We have to understand, it's not only foolish. That's not only silly. It's a direct violation of what God had called his people to. They were forbidden from looking for signs and omens and things. Way back in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. God says, there should not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, or anyone who practices divination, or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or anyone who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Now, the priests led the way in the failure to understand. But anybody who read those words would come away absolutely clear as to what God's view on these ideas of divination were. That does not need a lot of interpretation to be made clear. The people, simply by reading the law, would have known where God stands on these things, and yet they violate it. They move toward these pagan practices just like the nations around them, and why does it matter? What does it show? Well, it shows that they don't really understand God. See, when it says they've forgotten God, it's not just that they forgot who he was. It's they've forgotten what God is like. They have forgotten that God is a God of wisdom. They have forgotten that he has promised to give his people wisdom. Why do they pursue wisdom from idols? Why do they pursue wisdom even from the dead, from seeking answers from the dead? Well, it's because they've forgotten where they need to get their answers from. They they need to seek something out that feeds the desires of their flesh. And so they abandon what God has clearly told them he would do for them. And that's a spiritual failure. Now, we can condemn Israel. It's very easy to say what kind of fool would go look to a piece of wood for advice. But it is very, very easy for us to begin to adopt the culture around us. And anytime God's people begin to seek out the wisdom of the world, anytime they begin to allow the wisdom of the world to creep into how they make their decisions, it's an open door for idolatry. And 
really the sin is so great here. The failure to understand who God is and what he's called for is so severe that it's begun to impact every part of the culture. Verse 13, they sacrifice on the tops of mountains. They burn offerings on the hills under the oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. So they're doing this idolatry everywhere. It's flagrant. It's out there. It's absolutely permeated the culture. And then the second half of verse 13, therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. See, sexual sin and idolatry and these pagan worship things were all very closely tied together. Uh, those, those pagan worship rituals were not clean things. And God's people, in their movement toward the nations, in their movement toward the culture around them, in their movement toward idolatry, enveloped all of those practices. And so the picture here is that it's utterly kind of consumed the habits of the women. But then God says something very interesting. Verse 14, he says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. He says, I'm not going to deal with them yet. Why? For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. God says, I can't punish the daughters or the brides. Why? Because the men themselves are no better. And see, here's the reality. The prophets and the priests have failed to lead the nations. And in a very parallel way, the men have failed to lead their homes. God has set in his order, in his design, spiritual accountability built into not only the culture of his people, but into the culture of the family. And as the men fail, their families fail. And it's not that God is excusing the sin of the women any more than God is excusing the sins of the people for the failure of the priest. It's simply the reality that where there is no spiritual leadership, where there is no spiritual accountability, there is only failure. And we can't move away from this idea that sin is like an infection. It spreads and it pollutes and where the people of God refuse to be on guard, where they refuse to wholeheartedly pursue righteousness, sin simply trickles in. And where it's allowed in, it grows and it festers and it multiplies. And because sin does that, because a little sin leads to more sin, leads to full-blown idolatry, God now kind of turns the focus toward Judah, and he gives them a warning. He says, he says, Israel, when I look at Israel, the priests and the religious leaders are guilty. The people themselves are guilty. And now it's as if his gaze turns a little more south, and he says, now Judah, beware. Because you can see what's happening to your neighbor Israel, be on guard and, and be aware. Now, they're a little bit different. Judah has some moments of reprieve and blessing. Every now and then, a king would come into Judah who would rediscover almost the law. And it would bring the nation to this place of recognition of how far they had fallen and national mourning and national repentance. And God would sustain them and bless them again. Israel, leadership just went from bad to worse. There, there was no reprieve from wickedness there. So there's a distinction there. And in this time, God is giving Judah a warning. Look at verse 15. He says, though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Judah, be on guard and watch out. And then he says, enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth Abin, and swear not as the Lord lives. And once again, there are some unfamiliar things in a verse like that. Places that we don't recognize, names that we don't recognize, but, but it's important that we understand a little bit of what's happening here. Now, on the next slide, you'll see that division between the northern and the southern kingdom again, but we've been over that. Israel in the north, 
Judah in the south. And he says, don't go into Gilgal, which is the first arrow that's going to come up here. That's right there, almost right on the border. And at the time of men like Elijah and Elisha, Gilgal was this place of prophetic instruction. It was kind of a, a home base for God's spokesman. By the time you get to Amos, and definitely by the time you get to Hosea, apparently it is a center for cultic pagan worship, how far that place had fallen. And then he says, don't also go up to Beth Avon. Now, to understand that, we got to understand our man. When the kingdom divided, there were two alternate worship sites set up. Remember, God said, my temple is in Jerusalem, and that is the place for worship. But the northern kingdom set up two alternate sites, one in the very north in Dan, which is right there, and one in the south in a place called Bethel, right there. And so the kings of the north said, you could go to those two places. You don't have to go back down to Jerusalem. They set up this pagan alternate worship system. And that southern place, that place called Bethel, Bethel means house of God. Now here in Amos, the prophets changed the name to Beth Avon, which means house of deception or house of deceit. Don't go there. Don't call that the house of God. That is not the place where God dwells. Instead, you ought to call it the house of deceit because what you're doing is you're deceiving people into thinking that right worship is happening there. Just because you say that something is dedicated to Yahweh, just because you say that something is given over to the Lord does not mean that it is worship. And in his condemnation, he changes the name and says, it's not a house of God, it's the house of deception. Don't go to those places. And then he gives this picture of Israel. He says, don't go there, don't swear, don't, don't vow there. Verse 16, though, he says, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Israel, you are like a fat, stupid, stubborn cow. Why do you expect to be treated like a sheep? There's a bumper sticker. Don't act like a cow and expect to be treated like a lamb. God's people have become slow and stubborn and stiff-necked and lazy, and for some reason they still think they ought to reap the blessings. But how can they, when Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone? God's people have failed to the point where God is going to abandon them, and we'll see that in a minute. And, uh, Another thing that we need to kind of get straight here. God uses the term Ephraim. Northern kingdom is called Israel. Ephraim is a prominent tribe there, and sometimes that prominent tribe is used to refer to the whole thing. Like the southern kingdom is called Judah, but it's two tribes. It's Judah and Benjamin. Judah is much more prominent. Ephraim sometimes is used for the whole of the north. So God says, Judah, watch what is happening in Israel, and do not follow them into judgment and destruction. And so... That's, that's God's verdict. My people are guilty. And in chapter 5, we move on to the sentence that's going to be carried out. Crimes have punishments. Sin has a consequence. It always has. And chapter 5 is a sobering look at what God will do because of the sins of his people. And again, we're not going to go through every detail of every verse, but it does not take long to see major themes developing. And the first major theme that we're going to see as God reads out his sentence is that the Lord sees. Look at verse 1 and 2. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. Listen, priests. Listen, Israel. Listen, kings. Everybody involved in this sin, top to bottom, important to unimportant, prominent to nobodies. 
This judgment is for you. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. No one is going to escape from this. Why? Verse 3, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. There's the sobering reality that God knows exactly what is happening among his people. The idea that the Lord sees, depending on the context, is either a severe warning or a tremendous comfort. And given the context, this is about as severe as the warning gets. Now, the people's idolatry was not hidden. They did it on every high hill, every raised up place, under every tree. We already saw that. But somehow, they thought that as long as they maintained this kind of semblance of external visible worship in some place, that God would either either overlook or be ignorant of their sin. God says, I see it all. I see everything that is happening, every lustful thought, every public, every private failure. It's all open and laid bare before him. And their fallen hearts are what is driving their wicked deeds. Verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Remember, God has this backdrop saying, if you will just return. All the way back from Leviticus 26, remember, I'm going to do this, but if you return, I will restore the blessings. But they refuse to hear it. They refuse to respond because their hearts are so hardened against them. And again, it says they don't know the Lord. The Lord knows them. The Lord sees. They've forgotten what God is like. They've forgotten things like Psalm 139, where the psalmist writes, where shall I go from your spirit? Do you remember that? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, you're there idea that there's no place that you can flee from God. In the psalmist's case, a wonderful comfort because there's nowhere he can go that's outside of God's sovereign care, that's outside of God's guidance. Israel would have done well to remember that there's nowhere they can go that they're outside of the presence of God, that he knows their thoughts and their hearts. That means that none of their deeds, that none of their sin is getting ignored. And they're going to bear the consequences for all of it. We're going to come back to verses 5 through 7 in a minute because they actually tie into the very last verse in our passage. But as you go to verse 9, you see the second part of this judgment, and it deals with God being the moth and the lion to Israel. These twin pictures of how God is going to judge them. Look at verse 9. Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure... The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. See, God knows that Judah is going to see the warning, but they're not going to respond to the warning. And so Israel is going to be coming to judgment. Ephraim is going to come to judgment. And Judah is no better. They're like those that move the landmark. See, back in this time, you didn't have surveying crews that went out and laid out the property boundaries. You had boundary stones. And wicked men could come and take and move those boundary stones. And that's not only mean, that's not only greedy, it's a perversion of what God has entrusted the people with. Those land divisions were an inheritance given by God. It was how God sustained his people in the land from generation to generation to generation. And moving those, again, it's not only greedy, it's not only selfish, it's a violation of how God said you were to use his land. And he says Judah is going to pervert justice just like Israel did, so the same judgment is coming. Ephraim's oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth, 
And he says, but I am like a moth to Ephraim, like a dry rot to the house of Judah. It's this picture of slow, wearing destruction. One moth is annoying. They buzz around the lights when you're trying to get in the house. You've got to swat them or have your brave wife swat them for you. I know what it's like. But what happens when a moth just gets in among the clothes and you don't see it? And it just sits back there for months and it slowly eats away at the fabric. Dry rot. This picture of a little spot that's hard, that's maybe hard to see at first, definitely easy to ignore, that just spreads and consumes. God says, I'm going to be like this slow, consuming judgment. Israel, you are sick from the inside out. Israel, you are going to feel this wearing, waning, consuming disease from the inside out. And by the way, Israel does feel it. The problem is when they feel it, they do the exact opposite thing that they should. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness... And Judah, his wound, when they recognize that they are weak, when they feel the burden of this judgment that is, again, consuming them from the inside out, then what should they do? When they begin to feel the burden of weakness, what should they do? They should turn to God, right? That should be a sign. It should be a callback. Come back. Repent and return to me, says the Lord. But instead, what do they do? When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah, his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, Israel said, I'm weak. I better go find someone who's strong to come help me. And Judah does the same thing. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, they look for an alliance with a nation who's strong. They see their weakness, and instead of turning to God, they turn to the nations. And what's the tragic irony in that? That those are the very nations that God is going to use to bring them to complete ruin. They actually look for salvation in God's instruments of judgment. Don't miss the tragedy there. Don't miss the irony there. God's people, rather than recognize what God is doing among them, they say, we can fix this. Why? Because to them, it's all an external problem. The army is weak. The crops are weak. The nation is weak. How do we fix those external things? We go find someone with the external resources to make us strong. They fail to see that the heart is the problem. Their problems are not a weak military and weak crops. Their problem is a wicked and rebellious heart. And Assyria cannot touch that. And so because they refuse to deal with the problem, they refuse to find any solace. They refuse to find any comfort. And so destruction is going to come. Verse 14, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. We sing songs about God as the Lion of Judah, and He is. This regal, stately power and authority. Understand this. In the Minor Prophets, God as the Lion is not good news. When Yahweh roars, it is in judgment, not in blessing. And God says, if you don't listen to the moth, I'll be the Lion. You can ignore a moth. Nobody misses a lion. Lions don't slowly come and take you piece by piece. They come and they ravage and they tear and then they go. God's people's failure to deal with their sin, God's people's failure to listen to the repeated warnings are going to bring them to final destruction. 
and he says he's going to carry them off and no one's going to rescue them. Not Egypt, not Assyria, not Babylon, not anywhere that they go for help because they went to the wrong places. And finally, the most devastating judgment of all is that the Lord is going to separate himself from his people. The Lord is going to depart from them. In Exodus, God made that covenant with him. He said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. You're going to be my treasured possession. But even more remarkable than that, God said, I'm going to dwell among you. Out of all the nations on the earth, I am going to physically dwell in the midst of you. That had not been done since the garden. Adam and Eve walked with God. They dwelled with God and sin separated that. And then somehow, generations and generations later, God says, I'm going to come back and I am once again going to dwell among people. Do you understand the beautiful privilege that that should have been for Israel? That alone should have made them so blessed and so distinct from any nation on earth. And they thought so little of it that God would be with them. And so God says, I am going to leave you. Back to five. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and their herds, they'll go seek the Lord. The idea that they're bringing their animal sacrifices and they're going to seek the Lord, but what happens? They will not find him. Why? He has withdrawn from them. That is one of the most sobering phrases in the entire book, maybe in the entire Bible, that God has withdrawn from his people. Because you cannot find God unless he allows himself to be found. And God withdraws from his people. They've dealt faithlessly with the Lord. They've borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. And go to verse 15. I will return again to my place. The people wanted to be free from God. Do you see that? They wanted what they wanted. They wanted to be free of the burden of Yahweh and all that he had called them to be. And God says, okay, I'll give it to you. I'll return to my place. You, you read at some point this week, read Ezekiel chapter 10, and it doesn't deal with Israel, it deals with Judah. You, you get this picture of God's presence departing the temple, and the tragedy is no one notices. No one even notices. And the people are going to understand what it's like to be freed from the presence of God. But it's not the freedom that they imagine, it's destruction. But even here, just a glimmer of hope. I will return again to my place, should be a period. But it's not until. I'm going to do this until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. I'm going to do this until I don't. If they repent, he'll allow himself to be found again. If they worship him, he will enter into relationship with him. Again, that thread of promise that runs all the way through this book. That even in the midst of perfect holiness and perfect judgment, there's the promise of mercy. So what do you and I do with this? How do we move this to us? I want to bring us back to the idea that we talk about this same God who knows us and who is known. Israel forgot God. We dare not do the same thing. Israel forgot what God was like, and so they held their sin to be something small. You and I, when we develop a small view of God, we develop a small view of our sin. Israel forgot that the God that they knew was the God who knew them. 
we can forget that the God that we know about here is the same God who knows us. And if we forget God, we actually remove ourselves from the whole process of blessing that this is supposed to be. Because seeing God for who he is, with the clarity of his holiness and his power and his majesty, when we see that, then it helps us to see our sin as this terrible, tragic thing. And we say, we don't want to do that. That's uncomfortable. That's not good. But that's a blessing. To see sin for what it is drives me toward my knees in repentance. If I don't see God for who he is, I will never see my sin for what it is. And I will never respond rightly to that sin. It will never break my heart. It will never bring me to repentance. And if I never repent, then I'll never know the joy of forgiveness and restoration. See, that high view of God drives that whole cycle that brings us to a view of sin and then repentance and then restoration and then worship. And then we worship God in light of the great forgiveness that he's poured out on us and we move to live our lives in obedience, which brings us back into God's blessing. And it's this wonderful cycle that starts with remembering who God is and what he's called us to. And it ends with us responding rightly because there is blessing and honor and joy and fellowship in that. It's not responding to a taskmaster with a list of things that we check off. It's responding to the God who was and is and is to come the way he deserves to be responded to because in that we find our eternal good. Three things that I want us to think through. Three applications. First of all, to those with spiritual influence, think carefully. This passage pointed out the failure of the spiritual leadership in Israel. We need to think carefully about those that God has placed us in a position of spiritual influence to. We don't have priests. We don't have prophets. Easy parallels. Pastors, elders, ministry leaders. God has entrusted us not with authority, but with the service and care of his people. But it doesn't stop there. God would not deal with the sins of the women because the men were just as bad. Men, God has entrusted us with the spiritual care and oversight of our families. That is not something that we can choose to delegate to our wives because they're better at it, because they're more sensitive to it, or because they want it. Where families fail, it is largely because men have failed to lead as we have been called to. Parents, God has entrusted to us the unimaginable privilege of caring for and overseeing our children spiritually. That is not a role he called the Awana program to, or the VBS to, or the Christian school to, or the Sunday school class to. Those are helps, those are supports, those are encouragement, but parents, God has entrusted us with the responsibility and, again, the privilege of raising our children in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. And it doesn't stop there. Older men to younger men, older women to younger women. This idea that we are all a part of the discipleship process that ought to be taking place. And the health of the church, the health of the family, the health of our relationships is dependent on us taking our roles seriously. Second, that not only to those with influence, but to those who are influenced. A critical failure on the part of Israel was adopting and adapting to the culture around them. They were supposed to be like this brilliant shining light among the nations, but they failed. What has God called his church to? Well, Matthew wasn't that long ago. Salt and light come to mind. 
We are only effective as we are different. And it's very easy for us to blur the lines. Now, I'm pretty sure that nobody here this week asked about wisdom from a walking staff or a piece of wood in your house. But culture creeps in. Okay? Uh, I, I know plenty of Christians for who things like Ouija boards are games. Uh, the horoscope in the newspaper is something that they look at, not to take too seriously, but it is entertaining and it is fascinating to see how it lines up. A lot of Christians would probably be fairly embarrassed to read the song lyrics to 90% of their playlist during fellowship time. I'm not about to start a war on what your kids read or don't read. I'm certainly not holding up my parenting style or performance as anything to be absolutely modeled. But it doesn't even prick our hearts anymore when we have Christian kids who want to grow up to be witches and wizard, and again, that is not a specific condemnation on anybody or anything, but these are things that God's, world calls, uh, God's word calls abominations, and we, we overlook them, we flirt with them, we take them so lightly. My plea isn't to lock the doors, bar out the culture, and just wait it out till Christ returns. It's at the very least to think carefully about those potential ways where we've allowed the culture to infiltrate our hearts and our minds. And finally, to those who seek help, which is all of us. It likely won't take you till the end of the week before you come to a place of weakness where you need help. Where do you go when you need help? How silly of Israel to go to Egypt or, Israel or Assyria or Babylon to try to find help. Christian, where do you and I go to find help? Well, if only our politicians got it right, if only my boss got it right, if only they would write a book that would tell me how to deal with my struggles, if only I could get the right diagnosis. And somehow we come on Sunday and we sing and we talk about the sovereignty and the power and the wonder of the work of God, and then we go out the doors and we live like all the answers are somehow out there. And we wonder why the church doesn't seem to find any actual reprieve or rest or joy that ought to set us apart from the world. Why are we trading the one true source of power and help for something that is absolutely fallen and failed? We dare not condemn Israel when we pursue the world in the same way. Let's pray. Lord, we come to passages like this, and sin is heavy, and it ought to be. But God, even as we see you and your holiness, and we see our sin and its seriousness, God, I pray that you would remind us that you are merciful. That like Israel, if we turn, you're there to be found. For as often as we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from every unrighteousness. What a merciful God you are. Amen.